Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast, where we share stories about those who have fought to overcome addiction. Join us every Tuesday and Thursday for the latest stories, tools, and tricks to sobriety. Now, here's your host, Brock Bevel. So, hello everyone and welcome to Chase the Vase podcast. I feel like I'm a commentator on like a a Saturday morning football game between Navy and Army, you know what I mean? Dude, it's Army-Navy. You always got to say Army before Navy there, bro. Come on now. Okay, man. I'm here with ex-retired quarterback. What do you want to call him? Past tense quarterback from Army, man. From 2001. I was just talking before that, man, I remember this game. Hey, so thank you for all the supporters out there. Without you, we are nothing. We appreciate the, all the first responders, military personnel, all you men and women who are giving it to us. So thank you. But my next guest, like I said, is Chad Jenkins, man. I hope the goal of this is for you to inspire us, man, and and to motivate us. Uh-oh. Is that it? Dude, I guess I wore the right t-shirt. It says inspire others, man. No pressure. I want to give a little little history on it. You're a Dublin native, and that's not Ireland. No, Dublin, Ohio, D-Town, Dub-Dubalicious. Right on. You were the starting quarterback for the Army-Navy football game in 2001, but you had a four-year career there. Yeah, well, I went to Army's prep school, West Point Prep School out of high school, which a lot of football players do. I think there was like 49 recruited football players that, and all three service academies have a prep school. So did the prep school year and then four years at West Point. Yeah, and I started junior, senior year at quarterback, a couple games sophomore year. I want to know, man, how crazy is it at West Point? Like, how rigorous is it there? Trying to be academic, trying to be a football player, how is it, man? Do you get to devote just football, or do you have to learn everything else? No, I mean, it's it's everything. I mean, you don't know what you don't know, though, right, Brock? I mean, as a I, and I was 17 when I showed up at the prep school because I graduated at 17 and, and shortly turned 18 when I was at, like, the West Point prep school boot camp basic training. But uh, looking back on it, I think the difference in the lifestyle and everything else, yeah, it's a drastic difference from what most college-age kids are, are getting ready to embark upon after they graduate from high school. But you know, there's a rhyme to the reason. There's a method to the madness. And I think now I'm 41 now, right? So there does come a little bit of knowledge and wisdom with age. And I think retroactively looking at it, it's the sole purpose of West Point is to develop leaders so that they can take in a bunch of information and have a bunch of information thrown on them from a variety of different angles be able to decipher through that, eliminate the white noise, focus on the primary mission at hand, close with and destroy the enemy. Because that's the end-all, be-all mission of the army, correct? At 17 years old. Well, I mean, but that's what they're doing. They're overloading everything there. Academic, military, physical, uh, extracurricular sports. And then if it's Division I college sports, whatever. That's such an information overload. But that whole purpose is so that when that individual graduates college and they're responsible for the most prized possessions our country has, our sons and daughters, to do things to people that, you know, want to take that from us, at least that's my belief. I don't think they put that on the, you know, they don't put that on the header in the uh, media guide for West Point. But that's ultimately, that's why they do that, in my opinion. When did you realize that you wanted to serve? I don't come from like this gung-ho, oh my gosh, you know, I'm a fourth generation, you know, 
guy. My dad did get drafted for Vietnam, but he actually, he ended up going to Germany instead of Vietnam. It was like every other boot camp class. One would go to Vietnam, the next one somewhere in the world, next one Vietnam. And he fell on like an odd number and went to uh, Germany rather than Vietnam. But really, I, I will say, I mean, the reason I chose West Point is that they were the best football team at the time that was recruiting me. So like, I wanted to play. I, I loved football, loved it growing up, and I wanted to continue playing that at the college level. They were a Division I school that offered me the chance to do that. So that's kind of what got me there. And then I would say the bonding of especially that Army football team and the brotherhood at West Point, but then, you know, West Point as a whole as well, the individuals that you go and, and forge this bond with, that's what kept me there and got me focused to want to embark upon that. Chad, have you always been a leader? Oh, geez. You, gosh, that's a good question, Brock. I struggle with this one because there are times, oftentimes, where I don't feel like a leader. You know, self-doubt creeps in and maybe the weight of responsibility, whatever that might be. Fortunately, unfortunately, truth is a lot of people, you know, historically over the years, as of late, all the way back to, you know, early timeframes, like, oh man, you're a leader, you're a leader, you're a leader. That's just kind of been ingrained in what people observe from me. But the hardest individual to lead is ourself right? That's the biggest challenge we have is trying to figure out how to lead ourselves because I'm a firm believer that until we learn how to lead ourselves, we will suck for everyone else and we will not be able to lead anyone else as effectively as we can. So I think I'm a work in progress as a leader. So how did you become, because I think leadership, there is some serious development. I know that two years after you were playing college football, you were featured on an, a national CBS report and you were leading a team of 37 member of platoon rangers in Iraq. Yeah. That doesn't just happen, my brother. Well, I mean, West Point trained, that's what West Point does, right? They train those, you know, newly minted second lieutenants to get ready and take over, you know, whatever size or whatever platoon it is, whether it's an infantry field artillery, you know, aviation. I was an infantry guy. I wanted to go infantry. I wanted to be with the men on the ground that were going to be on the front line and be kind of the tip of the spear. Uh, and then it was more of a timing situation of how I got to that unit when we got there, the deployment cycle that put us, you know, I showed up, I graduated Ranger School in August of 2003, got a phone call from my battalion executive officer who was an Army football player and was at West Point as a kind of a mentor of ours when I was a cadet playing football. And he was now my battalion XO in 10th Mountain Division. He calls me up. It's like, hey, Jenkins, your platoon's getting ready to deploy in Iraq in two weeks. I'll give you one week to go home, say goodbye to everybody, come up here, meet your guys and get ready to take your platoon to Iraq. And then, you know, that first deployment was a year-long deployment. We were in Fallujah for eight of the 12 months, first battle of Fallujah. So on that front, I mean... It could be me. It could be a variety of individuals. And there was a lot of other guys and gals like me who then, you know, graduated, went through all their infantry or whatever basic training, officer candidate training they needed to do to then get ready to take over uh, platoons and go out there and, and lead those elements in combat. I'm hearing that. I'm hearing that. But you did four tours, man, in the Middle East. So my brother, my older brother, played some college football, played quarterback at the University of Wisconsin. He's a badger. So, so, but what's interesting, I see a leadership in him that's different than most men, right? Do you feel that the leadership you learned on the football field by being a quarterback, by leading men, not just the 11 on the field, but the team, 
prepared you to lead these men in the military? You're hitting the sweet spot because I've said that before, Brock. I said that there was nothing at West Point that prepared me more to get ready to lead men in combat than donning the black and gold helmet of the Army Black Knights and leading men on Saturday afternoons, Saturday evenings, whenever. But you're right, not just the tin in the huddle, but then the team collectively. You know, there, there's some that have never heard a shot of fire and anger before, right? And they get so upset, like, oh, how can these football guys make analogies of, you know, war and football and how they go? And for those of us that have done both of them, have played football and then have, you know, unfortunately or fortunately been in, in the two way gunfights, there's nothing that prepared me more. The similarities to that and having a collective role, understanding what my mission is as an individual and then inspiring and getting guys ready and collectively making the bigger mission, what that is, understanding what we control, what we can't control, the chaos on the field, going 100% all the time. Uh, there's so many similarities. And I mean, and I know West Point's a military school. It's a leadership institution. But, you know, uh, Douglas MacArthur, he has a great quote. Upon the fields of friendly strife are sown the seeds that upon other fields on other days will bear the fruits of victory. And what his whole purpose in that quote is, is that's why West Point, they make every single cadet do intramural sports as well. If you're not a college athlete, you still, and the, at the core level, have to play in some type of intramural competitive sport because he understood the importance and and what the you know how that transition then in leading men and women in combat. But I think you know I'm biased. I'm biased, right? I mean, football is what I'll go to. I mean, I, you were that guy. What's that? You were that guy, man. On Saturday, I just want to know what it, what did it feel like. Let me take you back to a game. Let me take you back to the 20, 2001 Army-Navy football game. I know before we started this, you said the Twin Towers were still on fire. There was still smoke coming up, man. And I shared with you my story. I remember this game. And even I remember a few months early when the towers were attacked, I was active police officer getting notification over my pager. My wife came upstairs. I was asleep. My pager's going off. She's like, hey, I think you're going out to work. But what was it like, man, that representation, donning that uniform on that day? Yeah, I mean, Army-Navy is always a big-time event, you know, even my freshman, sophomore, junior year. Um, And then there's always that emphasis. Even as a freshman, I remember looking at the seniors and, you know, the coaches let the seniors get up and and talk the night before and and say what it meant to them to be an Army football player. So, I knew that going into it, that as a senior, this is the last game I'll ever play. But then for the entire country, and specifically for every single football player, every single cadet, every single senior at West Point, 9-11 drastically changed the trajectory, right? I mean, we knew at that time, okay, we stopped being a peacetime military, and now we are actively at war. So I think it's hard to even put into words, Brock, the magnitude of it. Just recognizing, one, you're getting ready, or I was getting ready to end one thing that I loved ever since I was, you know, that I could remember. I was getting ready to put on the cleats for the last time of when it really mattered. But then after that, now it's time to transition. And now it's time to really now, you know, now we're playing the game of life and death, right? Now we're playing the ultimate game and getting ready to prepare for that. 
Maybe that puts it in perspective of recognizing, hey, while this is a game, we're going to put it all on the, on the field for these 60 minutes. But then in the back of at least my mind, I think uh, there was that knowing that there's a bigger mission, there's a bigger purpose that we're getting ready to do besides just going against our, you know, our brothers on the other side of the field in this game. Yeah. Was there a camaraderie that game? I know there's a kind of a love-hate between Army and Navy, but there was a camaraderie between on that day, that field. Army and Navy, there's like, yeah, there is the brotherly rivalry. I will say, at least back in my day, and I know it's that still way, the the one that gets under both of us is Air Force. We both equally can't stand Air Force. I say that jokingly, but from an Army standpoint and Navy standpoint, I mean, uh, there's guys on that team that, you know, I still stay in touch with today and still am in contact and they're brothers through and through and they're brothers through and through even then. I mean, that's the cool thing about it. It's not like uh, Auburn, Alabama or Ohio State, Michigan, where there's like this avid hatred, even amongst the, you know, the fan base where there's that brotherly competition and and wanting to win, but they're still, it's still grounded in that uh, respect for one another and admiration for one another and, and knowing what each other has done. So I know a lot of the listeners out there don't remember 20, uh, 2001. Who ended up winning that game? I wouldn't be talking about it this much. Had we lost, Brock, had we lost that game, I, uh, th- this would have been a quick soundbite, man. You guys actually won pretty, pretty well on that day. 26-17. So it was a little closer on the scoreboard than the, the game played out. But yeah, we kept a lead throughout the game. And Omari Thompson, who's now a chaplain in the Army, actually, but uh, Omari uh, returned the second half kickoff all the way uh, for a touchdown for us. And that kind of kind of put the nail, nail in the coffin, so to speak, for the rest of the game. So you were profiled in a book called The All-American Two Young Men, the 2001 Army-Navy game, and the war they fought in Iraq. I'm excited. This was the first time I had heard about it, man. After I saw your story, I'm like, I got to reach out to this Chad guy because he seems pretty cool. I know I know that there's some pretty cool details, but I your vibe is what I want to talk about. I know that there's a lot of men that listen to this podcast, a lot of men and women who are active in addiction and PTSD, and, and they really struggle with uh, putting their life back together. And you made a comment or you were asked a question about uh, between deployments of how difficult it was to like leave the military, leave that chaos. And I know that you indicated that you don't struggle currently with PTSD, but has anything changed? Are you noticing anything? Well, I mean, I don't want to say I don't struggle with PTSD. I mean, I, I was diagnosed with PTSD in 2017, finally. And it was after years of kind of that avoidant. Avoidancy was my biggest uh, hallmark. I could avoid you know, emotional pain, I could avoid emotional connection, I could avoid, I could avoid a lot and kind of uh, put off everything emotionally and everything here, you know, in the present moment back then, I could put off all that and just kind of check out and continue mission, if you will, but not, not having the interpersonal skills that are necessary to have a healthy relationship, have a healthy relationship within my wife, have a healthy, you know, loving, flourishing relationship with my children. And that stems from the combat traumas that, that were endured. And they were endured uh, my first deployment, my year-long deployment. There were two incidents in particular. There was a Chinook that got shot down with a, a surface-to-air missile November 2nd, 2003 in, uh, in southern, oh, just south of Fallujah. And my platoon was the quick reactionary force. We were actually, we had just come up, we were guarding a uh, ammo supply point south of Fallujah, uh, just our company. And 
my men had just guarded that compound overnight and I had brought them off of that shift at about 7 a.m. that morning. We were getting hot, hot breakfast there at this little outpost that was just a, it was just in the middle of the desert. It was a pretty bad remote location to be, but we're eating breakfast. We're going through the line and we see two Chinooks flying from east to west, helicopters. And then all of a sudden you hear an explosion and we all looked over and then there was just one Chinook that was flying and the other one had gotten shot down. So we were within about 15 minutes to put on all of our stuff, get there because we were the closest element. So I took my platoon there. Uh, there was, uh, you know, 16 killed, 26 wounded. And one of the traumas was, uh, you know, I was triaging a sergeant, a young sergeant out there that was pinned under the wreckage. Thought he was going to make it. He seemed like he was very stable at the time. And, you know, just trying to prevent him from going into shock, talking to him, asking him questions. I had one of my other E5 sergeants there helping triage. And I went to go get two of my men to help get the wreckage pinned off of his lower extremities so that we could, you know, begin to try to stop the bleeding at his, at his lower level. And he's like, sir, don't leave me. He didn't know me. He could see the rank on my uniform. He's like, sir, don't leave me. I was like, dude, I got you. I was like, I'm coming right back. I just got to get two of my boys. We're going to be right back. I'm going to come back and get you. And uh, he's like, no, sir. He's like, don't leave me. I was like, dude, I've got my team leader right here. I'm going to be right back. I'll be back in 30 seconds. So I went, ran. I was probably gone, you know, maybe 30 seconds to a minute and a half. Came back with my two guys to help us. And my team leader was there and he was, you know, starting to break down a little bit. He's like, sir, we lost him. It just, it broke me. Because I felt like I had um, lied to him. You know, he asked me not to leave him. And one of the parts of the Ranger Creed is never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. Well, never leave a fallen comrade. I would overplay that in my head constantly. It's like, dude, I left him. Never leave a fallen comrade. The whole stanza or the whole sentence is never leave a fallen comrade to fall into the hands of the enemy. But, you know, that's how PTSD works. That's how mental health works. We start to tell ourselves these negative things about ourselves and what, you know, pieces of shit we are and everything else, we start to buy into it. And I never really shared it with anybody else. Didn't, you know, just kind of gutted it and, and didn't want to, you know, all the classical things. Didn't want to be a burden on somebody else. Didn't want, you know, I was a man. I didn't need to have feelings over this. That's what happens. Blah, 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 blah. Later in that deployment, we were doing counter IED ambushes one night. Um, I took out a uh, squad and a half. So just under two squads about, there was about 15 to 18 of us that were conducting counter IED ambushes on this road uh, in a Scandaria wreck that was just getting crushed by IEDs every single night. So we were going in the middle of the night, we were going to go in this farm field, we were going to set up ambush locations along this route to see if anybody, any bad guys were placing IEDs, then we could, you know, go ahead and conduct the ambushes. Well, we parked our vehicles in this farm field and we disembarked or dismounted off the vehicles. I was going with my most northern fire team. Fire teams made up of five men and then myself and my RTO. So there were seven of us total. Uh, we were walking through this farm field. We were going uphill through like a wheat field. We came under AK-47, small arms, uh, machine gun fire. And luckily... As we were walking uphill, just a little incline, the shooter who was shooting at us at the AK-47 was shooting straight. So he was shooting directly over our heads, but luckily not right into us. So we immediately went into um, react to contact because it was it was within um, hand grenade range. We were within 35 meters of the ambush. So you immediately go into three to five second rushes where you set up over set up a you know fire position. My RT and I bounded to the right. 
we lay down suppressive fire and then the whole element, we just start bounding up the hill until I called cease fire because we weren't getting shot at anymore. And uh, I called cease fire. Uh, there was all that adrenaline and dopamine and, you know, nephinephrine, everything's running, right? At that time during that firefight, I was like, hell yeah, we're, we're killing some bad guys. We're killing some guys who were, you know, trying to set up ambushes or trying to set up IEDs in the farm. Like we snuck up on them until we called or until I called ceasefire. And then it was just, it was the most horrendous blood curdling scream I have ever heard. It was just, and it terrified me, right? It terrified me when I heard it. I was like, this is not what I was expecting. So I got up to the top, we got up to the top and uh, it was a 12 to 13 year old boy that had shot at us with the AK-47. And so he was all shot up. We shot him in the shoulder, the arm, the hand, leg, foot. I mean, he and he was the one screaming. And then to his left, when we got up there, right to his left, our right, was this little makeshift white tent. And uh, one of my specialists had gone in the tent. He came out. He's like, sir, don't go in there. I'm like, I'll go in there. And I went into the tent and the boy's mom was on her knees and she was holding her three-year-old little girl who was lifeless. We had killed unintentionally in the gunfight. And that once again broke me. I mean, that one tore me up more than anything because she had beautiful curly dark hair. She was wrapped in a pink blanket and um, her mom just looked at back at me and was just basically in shock. Those two incidents uh, happened. I didn't want them to ever affect me. I didn't want them to ever, you know, get into me and acknowledge, you know, that they could change me. And so I'm open about it, Brock. I'm open that I had to go through uh, intense cognitive processing therapy. The reason I can talk about both of these incidents is because I've gone through hard individual talk therapy with a psychologist at the West Palm Beach VA Medical Center at their PTSD clinic. And I've gone to group therapy, the healing combat trauma group therapy, which is Christian-based, biblical-based group therapy at the VA as well. So I'm a big advocate for mental health that we got to do the work. I don't think it's something that's asking for help or needs to be looked at as a weakness. Although that's how I did perceive it. That's how I did talk about it prior to going in and doing that work and going through the therapy. But I think we got to you, me, everybody that's been through that, you know, been through that ringer and knows what it's about, what you're doing. We got to talk about it. We got to make sure people know that it's not easy. I think the alphas out there think that, oh, that's weakness, that's cowardly, whatever. I've said, hey, I've done some physical stuff in my life. Nothing has challenged me more than sitting in there emotionally, mentally, uh, even physically exhausting me, like going in there and having to write all those traumas out and read them then to my psychologist and break myself down basically as a man to actually acknowledge the pain and be able to feel the pain and grieve the pain and, and learn from it, grow from it, recognize that we can make it through, but it, and it might suck more than it does now once we go through that. But once you go on the far side of the hill, there is hope, there is uh, light, and that, that light, that hope, is that, you know, I don't have it all figured out by any means. I've got a lot that I still got to work on, but at least I can connect with, you know, those that I love the most in my life and I can have that emotional connection and feel them when they need to be felt by me and that they can feel love from me the way that a father is to love a child and the way the father or a, a man is to love a woman his love to his wife. First of all, thank you for sharing that, man. It takes a, it's difficult. I know you've worked through it. We've done hard things to get over some of these traumatic events. I I understand that. But I'm thankful that you're willing to talk about it and break that stigma. Because I look at you, man. I look what you've gone through. I look of who you are. 
And if we don't talk about it, nobody will. You know, we talk about these sheepdogs and these warriors out there, but it takes kind of a big man to stand up and say, man, you know what? I'm struggling. I'm struggling. These things I've seen, I'm hurting and I need help. And if we don't do it, who will? I completely am with you. And I mean, I think uh, I think it, it starts here. It starts with the dialogue. It starts with the forum. I mean, I will say maybe it was ignorance, but I don't think it is because there's too many of my, you know, guys that even now um, during my Ranger Regiment time and even my 10th Mountain time that I still stay in touch with that are out there and that, you know, trying to encourage them along, however that is, love them wherever they're at, but also be truthful in our stories so that they can hear that and see that, okay, if I do do that and go in, kind of, they have a little bit of what that might look like, even though everybody's got their own unique story and own unique journey. But on that front back then, you know, the height of the war, at least, you know, 2003 to 2007, my time frame that I was in, that's when I was active duty. I mean, we just didn't talk about it. I mean, I, I hate to say that. PTSD was just coming on the surface, just coming on the radar. And so we've gone a lot further. I think as a society as a whole, we've gone a lot further, but there's a lot of work still to be done to continue talking about that. And then not make it where it's, oh, I'm I'm losing my train of thought on what, like, you know, kind of... Uh, old baggage or, you know, I'm a wounded dog. There's no use. No, like we can get through it. We can go on the other side and then let's go out and be productive. And I said this, I think the combat veteran community is a great community to point to mental health, say, Hey, we went, we did it. Cause I can tell you, Brock, I'm a heck of a lot. And I don't say this arrogantly or boastfully, but I'm a heck of a lot better of a leader. Now, after going through all of that, understanding all the other side of me and of others and all that from an empathetic standpoint, from a compassionate standpoint, but even from a integrity character standpoint, all of those things, I think I'm a much better positioned person to, to lead now than I was back then prior to all of this. You know, it makes me think about for us, it's easy to do the hard things. Like it's easy to, you know, we talk about the three core beliefs, mind, body, spirit right? We talk about that in in recovery. And so it's easy to work the body, right? Because it's the first thing that that happens. We start working out, it starts falling. We start eating better, it starts going. Look better, we feel better. And then I feel like the mind, we got to work through it, you know, but nobody can see the mind. But for me, the spirit, the spirit of a man, right? That what we're carrying, that big change, like you're talking about, we're better individuals because we went through it. Well, yeah, no, I love that. And I love you bringing up the spirits part. I think that's, um, it's funny because I'm kind of transitioning my company a little bit to focus on leadership development, but from a mental and spiritual wellness component, the two things you just mentioned. And why is that? Well, because physically we can see it, right? (laughs) We can see both of those, as you just said. Mentally, we can't really recognize, we can't really see the progress. I mean, I can feel it and I can think it. So there's a little bit of that. And then spiritually as well, that's it, which I have to make a declaration. I mean, spiritual is the most important one of all of them, because while physically our bodies will die one day, our spirit lives forever. And we have one choice, you know, one choice. Are we going to follow him? And I'm, I'm a firm, I'm an unashamed, unapologetic follower of Christ. That's just how I am. Because what he did for me during all of this, he's always with me. It was my choice. Did I want to give him all of me? No, I decided not to. I didn't give him all of me until I hit absolute rock bottom in 2017. And then he had all of me. And that's actually when all the work was able to take place. That's when he finally said, okay, I've got you where I need you. Now I'm going to align everything. 
from your psychologist, from the VA and the combat healing group, all the stuff, everything he lined up. His timing, not ours, but I think those two are the most important because they're one, the most taboo. They're the ones that the most off limits. They're the ones that society tells us not to ever mention or talk about. By God, it's the most important that we could ever talk about are those two, the mind and the spirit, in my opinion. So let me ask you this, Chad. Let's, let's break the stigma real fast. Let's do it right here, right now. I'm being serious because I, like you, have gone through some pretty dark places. And I know that the only way that I am here looking to you in your eyes is because of Jesus Christ. And I am a firm believer that, that he carried me through. I'm, you know, I get a little emotional talking about it, but I, he's the one that carried me through it to allow me to be different today, to have a bigger voice, to understand and have that empathy towards other people, that pure love of Christ that we talk about. When I had my ego, when I thought I was bigger and better and badder and I was the best, I couldn't feel that empathy for people. How has your relationship with Christ improved your ability to heal? Well, it's the only way that I get peace. It's the only way that I get peace throughout the whole process. And that's what I love. That's what I love about the word. That's what I love about that personal relationship. And I needed, I needed the cognitive processing therapy. I needed that mental health work in order to get, but here's the thing. God created you. He created me. He created everything. He created everyone. He has gifted some in the space of mental health, mental health counseling, mental health professional. There's the flip of that where I think there's some out there who are well, I'm just going to take it to Jesus. I'm going to pray to Jesus. I'm going to get healed. And like, maybe that will work. Maybe, but don't also silo yourself and be kind of on that ego where, well, I don't need anybody else. I've got this. I've got, you know, because I've kind of gone down that road before and no, like I need my ego checked at the door and I need to say, Hey, no, it's him first first and always, but then don't wall myself off to others and where they can go ahead and help me through ever, wherever I need to get, you know, right as well. So I think it's a, a combination of the two. And I also don't think, um, I mean, we, we got to know our word, you know, we are in this world, but not of this world. And we got to recognize, I recognize like, because I follow Christ, because I love him, because I'm in the word with him, like to say seven days a week, but that would be a lie. It's more like four to five days a week in the early morning, but that's, and it's not every day that I get that peace from him, but those days that I do in that morning devotional, the house is quiet, kids and wife are still upstairs asleep, and I'm down with my coffee and the word, there's no other peace than that. I mean, that's just the ultimate just healing. It's the ultimate therapy. It's the ultimate, you know, just grace that he gives us. But you're right. I was never able to, I was never able to share that. I was so fearful to share, I guess, the authenticity of that with anyone else. And I think there's a lot that are out there that are maybe wanting to dabble in that. They want to know what that looks like. And I think maybe they need a little bit of encouragement as well to say, hey, go there, go to that ultimate source, but then recognize that he's created everything. He's created a lot of others that can help as well. But I don't think, I think those are temporary. I think those can temporarily help, but I don't think that will give you, you know, the ultimate healing that you're looking for. Yeah, that's a wonderful take. You know, I noticed that my healing started when I realized I wasn't enough to heal it. Because as a sheepdog, as a warrior, right, as the boss, the leader, whatever you want to call, you want to, you don't want to admit that you're weak, that you need help. And then especially going to outside of your power, 
to having to call on your higher power to, to go to a savior. It's interesting how this conversation took a turn, but I mean, I am a firm believer that there's only so much we can do, so much healing we can do, so much cognitive therapy we can do, so much exercise we can do and mental exercise we can do. And you have to finally reach deep and say, I'm powerless. Dude, you're spot on, man. You're spot on. And yeah, it's especially true to somebody who has a self-reliance, who's always, that was basically my kryptonite, was all the way up until that point, I had been able to get myself out of that predicament, right? I could rely upon whatever it was, athletics or, you know, thinking that I was an okay leader or whatever. I was always able to get out until there was that moment where, man, I had no other options. The chat options had all run out. Now, where do I go? You know, and you know what? I'm okay to say it. Like if that's considered weakness, then call me a coward. I don't care. I I would rush, call me a coward for having to go to him and say, you know what? You're my ultimate healer. I don't have this figure because I will take that label gladly because of what he's been able to do. And you know what? It's funny that you mentioned this because I actually, I have these, you know, random thought. I was actually in the gym over lunch and that's when this random thought came in. But it's all on this talk about uh, take mental health, you know, disorders, PTSD, anxiety, depression, take that off the shelf, anything that's DSM related, but just your average person, your average person, it's statistically that 80% of our thoughts are negative. That's an individual person without any type of mental health, just a a normal person down the street, 80% of the thoughts they have according to some science, you know, blah, 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 review is negative. That's a perfect example of why I need Christ and I need the word of God because I can renew my mind on his truth, not on mine, because I know where mine gets me because I'm already, I already know scientifically that 80% of the time it's going to be negative. Where can I go for that affirmation, for that truth, that love, the word? That's where I go to get renewed, you know? So Take it or leave it. I don't know. Maybe too much coffee for me today. I love it, man. There is so much more that we need to dive into this conversation. We're going to have to have a part B of Chad Jenkins because we haven't even got into the FBI. We haven't got into what you're doing now, which I think is amazing. I know you're doing big things to inspire others. I want to get into that. We've noticed that you go any more than about 40 to 45. People start shutting down. Oh, on the minutes. That's my sweet spot as well, man. Yeah. So what I want to end with is I understand that it takes five seconds of courage to change. That's what experts keep telling us. Five seconds of courage. So I'm going to speak for for Chad and I and say, hey, man, reach up. You got five seconds of courage to prove the worth. You know, and I, 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 like you, Chad, I, I invite people to accept Christ into their lives, especially when you're struggling with something that's bigger than you. Take the test. See how he responds. I love that. I've never heard about that whole five seconds of courage. I've not heard that. I like that. What Expound upon that real quick. Well, think about jumping out of an airplane, man. It takes five seconds to make a decision that you're going to do it. Five seconds. I mean, if you can pause long enough in five seconds, that's your turning point. You have five seconds to do something right or do something wrong. Do something hard or do something easy right? And that's what I'm hearing. And that's what the, the gift that I've been given. It takes five seconds, man, to be courageous. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. And I, I think um, on the flip side of that too is, uh, you know, I think both you and I, I think we're at a place. I know that's where I'm trying to be right now is 
I just want to, you know what, the unconditional love of him all the time, no matter what. He's got that for every single person. And that's how I want to be towards others is uh, just an unconditional love. Now, that's not always the case. I, I fall short of that daily. But that's where my mind is. That's where I want to get to. Because I think that's what people need. I think we need to lead. And, and sometimes the love doesn't need to, it doesn't need to be soft and gooey and mushy. Sometimes it's hard truth. And sometimes it's corrective. And sometimes it's discipline. But recognizing what the underlying reason is behind it. And that's uh, loving them where they are and bringing them into the fold. Because uh, I think that's the ultimate mission of us. That's the ultimate. He has us here for a reason. If that's the task that he's given us, what better task than that to be warriors of his? So uh, let's go forth and do it. I love that, man. So Chad, people are going to be like, how do I reach this guy, man? How do my some listeners, they love your vibe. They want to learn more about your company. Talk to me about it real fast. Yeah, no. Uh, well, just reach out through LinkedIn primary. That's like my main social media because I, I like it because it's business and it's, but it's also, I think it's a, a platform that's business and personal. I think the two need to be combined. That's part of the whole mental health thing is I want to be authentic in every facet of my life, whether it's business work, uh, personal, coaching my kids, putting them to bed at night. I want to be the same Chad in every single environment. I want to be authentic through every single stage of that and not have to change and wear different face masks and wear different vibes. So LinkedIn, um, Chad Jenkins on that front. If you want to email, it's just, it's info at Jenkins dash or slash or Jenkins hyphen group.com. And we didn't get into it, Brock. I'm transitioning Jenkins from a security consulting more to the leadership development. I know we briefly spoke about it. So there's going to be a a little bit of a transition for our website, focusing on that and really uh, trying to teach individuals how to be leaders of themselves first. I don't think we can lead others until we lead ourselves, until we figure that out, until we do some self-reflection. Let's stop. Let's stop. Let's slow down. Let's really evaluate who we are. And if we've fallen short, that's okay because you're not alone. We've all fallen short. But let's own it. Let's take accountability of it. And let's grow from there who we can then become for for ourselves and for those around us. So, Chad, are you working with businesses or individuals? Uh, Right now, it's going to be individuals. Individuals. I do do, you know, speaking engagement. I got a speaking engagement lined up here in the end of May for Memorial Day. So corporate speaking engagements we can do as well with the mental health aspect and talking about that. But right now from the leadership development, it's going to be rolled out to individuals. Hey, Chad Jenkins, man. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your testimony, for your resolve, for serving our country, for being the man who you are. I bet your your wife and kids are, are proud. So keep chasing the vase and I will ask you straight up for a a second interview, a part two. So hopefully the listeners will get more of Chad. So thank you, sir. Hey, thank you, Brock. Keep on doing what you're doing, man. Continue to fight the good fight, brother. You've been listening to Chase the Vase podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcasts to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more information, please follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Or visit our website, chasethevase.com. Until next time, keep chasing the vase.